This episode is brought to you by the AIA Film Challenge. Let architecture inspire your next short film for a chance to win $5,000 and a screening at the Architecture and Design Film Festival in New York. The fourth annual AIA Film Challenge invites filmmakers to team with architects and share stories of architects and civic leaders designing a better future for our communities. Register today at AIAFilmChallenge.org. That's AIAFilmChallenge.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. It's August 23rd, 2018, and on this week's show, is Amazon coming to a theater near you? Netflix tests a feature that is sure to piss off some viewers. How old is too old to make your first film? And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and weekly words of wisdom. downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Welcome back from Mexico. Right? Hola. Yeah, welcome right. back, Liz. Y gracias. I heard you had some fried crickets. I, I actually, like oh, I ate crickets. I did it all. And Montezuma had his revenge, but, um, you know, we're working on that. Oh, my God. Well, you're going to win in the end. <laughs> so true. Gosh, you guys, it is a really... I mean, Mexico City is just gorgeous. I recommend uh, everyone checking it out. I can see why so many Mexican filmmakers, like those I was chasing on my journey, yeah. have found inspiration there. And though you didn't find Alfonso Caron, you were in Roma. That's true. I so, actually stayed in Roma. So so I, lo- I watched the trailer. You weren't in it, but I'm going to go again to see it. <laughs> Well, actually, the big news in this this team while I was gone is uh, is that Charles wrapped shooting on his, uh, his yeah, web, my web series. Uh, yeah, my web series, Salty Pirate, is mostly wrapped. Uh, one thing I noticed that's changed in production in the last 10 years is, like, everybody owns a 4K camera now. So, like, I am still, like, shooting establishers and time lapses and stuff. Like, production trickles way more into post than it did, like, 10 years ago when, like, you had to turn the camera back into the rental house and then you were done. Is that a good or bad thing? I mean, it's kind of great because we're getting, like, insane three-day time lapses of neon signs against the New York skyline. But it's also, like, psychologically, that pleasure of, like, everything's back in the rental house and we're done. Like, that moment is different now. Well, can you can you give us a little overview of just how it went? Oh, I mean, it went super great. I had the best DP I've ever worked with in my entire life, Sarah Cauley, who, like, she shot the pilot of Salem. She shot Faye Grimm. And it was, like, it was, like, one of, and I had these amazing actors. And we had, like, weeks of rehearsal. And it was, like... It was just great. The only bad thing that happened is I got pain on a couch, and I'm going to have to reupholster a couch. And, like, if that's the worst thing that happens, it is annoying to reupholster a couch, but it's, like, it's just stuff. And the company that made it is still in business. We'll get the same upholstery back. Everything else is magic. I cannot wait to share stuff with the No Film School community from, like, tech stuff on the set and also directing again after so far away, and then hopefully the thing will be done and I get to show it to everybody. Woo! In the meantime, uh, one of the other main themes besides weather here on the No Film School podcast is how filmmaking is changing. That's, you know, what we talk about on the site a lot. After all, we were founded on the DSLR cinematography wave. But if you listen to the show frequently, you know that one of our main themes is how film exhibition and distribution are changing. And there's been an interesting development on that front this week, or at least an interesting potential development in what could be a landmark deal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll know what I'm talking about in a minute. Our largest and most notable independent theater chain here in the U.S. is Landmark. It's got over 50 theaters in 27 markets. Presumably, with the decline of theatrical movie going, owner and Shark Tank star Mark Cuban has been publicly looking to sell the chain for a couple months, and there's a big buyer sniffing around. That buyer is Amazon, which is interesting to indie filmmakers for a couple reasons. One, it would continue the shift of filmmaking, or at least the media-making business, from Hollywood to Silicon Valley. Two, Amazon might be making a big play for filmmakers who've not gone with Netflix because it limited them from theatrical releases. After all, The Big Sick and Manchester by the Sea were two Amazon releases that did very well in theaters. Oh, and by the way, this has a tie-in with our ongoing favorite summer story, The Rise and Fall of MoviePass, because Amazon, of course, is a subscription service. What if Amazon Prime memberships start to include movie tickets to landmark theaters? Intriguing stuff. 
This potential deal has even broader implications in the industry as a whole, which are described in an in-depth piece in IndieWire by Tom Brugeman and Ann Thompson. This move would circumvent laws passed in 1948 called the Consent Decrees that barred studios from owning theater chains to avoid monopolies. And now the U.S. Department of Justice is reviewing these decrees for possible revoking. After all, now that the whole industry has changed, maybe it wouldn't matter as much if studios owned their own theaters anymore. And as the article points out, if studios owned theaters, it would remove the 90-day streaming delay window because they wouldn't be dependent on theater owners for release strategies. On the other hand, it might mean that less indies make it to theaters if most theaters are controlled by big studios. Either way, this is a space to watch, and I bet by this time next year, the movie showing business will look pretty different than it does today. So my first job in movies was at Landmark Theaters. I worked in the marketing department for $250 a week when I was 20, and uh, I loved everyone there. Ray, hello, Ray Price, wherever you landed. But, I mean, honestly, if this means that Marvelous Mrs. Maisel shows in a theater, like even if it's just one night, but you, I mean, the cinematography is David Mullen. He's like a big movie DP. It's beautiful. Like, a lot of those Amazon original shows are really gorgeous and, like, wouldn't make sense to rent a theater to show it. But if they owned the theater and they could show a couple of nights of it, my wife and I would totally go to that. Well, that makes me wonder, too, if this does come to fruition, if they would just be showing Amazon titles. Because I, I find it hard to think that they could just maintain and sustain a business model just by showing their own work. I don't know. I, I don't like think they would. I mean, yeah. Whole Foods sells other people food. Amazon yeah. itself sells other products yeah. all the time. But yeah. I think the option then when you own the theater of you don't have to rent it out, you don't have to split the revenue fee from it, of occasionally being like, oh, Tuesdays are really slow for new releases. Maybe Tuesdays we show our shit. Yeah. And it's part of a prime thing and we make money off the popcorn. Like, there's something there. Although, Landmark's not strong in New York anymore. No, the one well, closed downtown. Closed, yeah. yeah. And, but Amazon is pretty uh, on board with, like, theatrical as well, which is nice because they don't do day and date with their streaming service. So Manchester by the Sea, the Big Sick, will get, like, big theatrical campaigns and openings, and then will premiere on Prime a couple of months later. So they still do have a pretty traditional model with theatrical, and Netflix does not, obviously. And speaking of Netflix, one reason I'm sure people love Netflix is due to the fact that they can binge-watch their favorite binge-worthy shows uninterrupted. Well, that may soon be changing as Netflix is rolling out a small sample size project on a number of its subscribers. If you're binge-watching a series, you may be subjected to commercials for other Netflix shows in between episodes of your binge-watching escapades. That's right, you may have to watch commercials on Netflix. We are testing whether surfacing recommendations between episodes helps members discover stories they will enjoy faster, Netflix said in a statement. A couple of years ago, we introduced video previews to the TV experience because we saw that it significantly cut the time members spend browsing and helped them to find something they would enjoy watching even faster. Now, to be clear, the episode or movie you'd be watching will not be interrupted mid-episode or mid-movie, but in between going from one episode to another, you may have to watch a few commercials for other Netflix properties before advancing onto the next episode. So, I mean, I think I got scared at first when I heard about this because I thought it would be interrupting the actual episode in the program, and that would make it very much like regular television that we all know. Um, having it between episodes as we're going from one to another... I think is a little bit better. I'm sure it's opening the floodgates for more advertising to come aboard the platform, but I don't know. I don't know if this is end of the world just yet, but it does maybe set a precedent for that coming. Well, it's funny that just last week on the show, you guys were talking about how one of the turnoffs of Hulu is the ads. Yeah. Yeah, but they have three ads in their, like three sections for ads in their uh, actual episodes. So it's like real ads. It's not like trailers or recommendations for movies you'd like which is cool i guess i just think that maybe netflix needs to have a little bit more trust in their users that they like know what they want to watch well i think it's about avoiding people noticing the thinness of netflix's offering if they can always recommend the next thing you like you have fewer of those circumstances where you're like oh you know what i want to watch and then netflix doesn't have it and you're like oh do they have anything with that actor and you're like they have nothing with Owen Wilson? And then you're like, <laughs> Owen Wilson? <laughs> for example. Yeah, I looked for Owen Wilson. I would a, love a, a trailer ago, for And I was like, there was Dupree. not a single Owen Wilson movie in the entirety of Netflix. This was a while ago. But I was like, 
So they're trying to avoid that. They're mm. trying to always have the next thing so you don't notice the things they're missing. And for me, this is infuriating because like HBO Go does this where at the beginning of HBO right. episode, there's always a one minute thing of all the other HBO shows. And I'm like, HBO, I'm paying fourteen ninety nine a month for this. And I just want to watch the next episode of Secession. I know you have these other shows. And Netflix doing this just really feels like, like honestly, it feels like enough of a deal breaker. I think people would unsubscribe. I don't know. Netflix is huge. I would, I wouldn't, I'm not going to unsubscribe. It doesn't bother me that much. I think people might unsubscribe if they started advertising outside products, but I can't imagine this is that big of a turnoff. I mean, it is if they keep advertising really weak Netflix shows. Like if it's like good show, good show, good show. But if they start showing me shows where I'm like insulted, where I'm like, you want me to watch that show? That show's bad. Well, if your gauge is Owen Wilson, I don't know. How <laughs> yeah, I think he'll be okay. Owen Wilson has been he'll in be okay. many good projects. Let's be clear here. That's, that is true. So He is very charming. But do they have Crossroads, Eric? They, I don't know if they have Crossroads. And if they watch it, what would they recommend me after? Glitter? Uh, <laughs> but Belly. Speak, speaking of recommending... Um, it's not going to be coming from the users going forward because in other Netflix news, if you've ever written a review on Netflix's website and were perhaps embarrassed by the content of your film or television criticism, uh, never fret because all user reviews on Netflix have since been erased and wiped clean, deleted, taken out to the graveyard, permanently disintegrated. Yep, that your user reviews no longer exist. Netflix said in a statement that the reviews in our redesigned rating system, thumbs up or thumbs down, never contributed to how we approach personalizing recommendations for members, and writing a bad review never had any bearing to whether a title was recommended to another viewer or not. But who knows if that's truly the case. A negative review by a user for a popular film or series or comedy special that Netflix is pushing it can't be happy with having people talking shit about it. Uh, displaying those reviews that go against the company's own marketing push to get viewers' eyeballs on the product seem to kind of be two different things working against one another. Uh, it may be a wise move, but maybe one done in jest. So I'm not totally sure on this part either, but to kind of silence the negativity around things they may be pushing and they want to obviously start advertising themselves seems a little... Uh, I don't know if slimy is the right word, but it, it does seem like an act to silence some of the users and negative criticism. Well, what's weird for me is that that thumbs up, thumbs down has no... I always thought that they registered that. Like, I always thought they were customizing my algorithm based off of the movies, which I like and dislike. So why wouldn't they, like, adjust their algorithm to better give you recommendations instead of, like, throwing random ads in between binge watches? It just... I don't know. It's very yeah. strange. Yeah. I, I purposely, I've made a point over the past, like, two years, three years, ever since they introduced that thumbs up, thumbs down thing to, like, do it because I thought that they were adjusting, like, their recommendations yeah. for me. Which is crazy because they're basically saying the, the thing point? you tell us is less important than what we guess about you yeah. based on how long you watch things. Sounds like an excuse just for Netflix to promote their own content to me. And while we've been keeping everyone up to date regarding our creepy dude corner as of late, uh, which has been somewhat uh, staying put for the past couple of weeks, I feel Moon like. Moonface? Oh, yeah. I How mean, long ago was that? Like two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. <laughs> we didn't add anyone last week. Um, Moonbase? Less, less Moonbase. Less the CBS. Oh, okay. right. His last name is Moonbase? <laughs> like, like, it's, it's Freebase. It's like with a V. Moonvest. Oh, Moonvase. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if his name was Moonbase, we awesome. would give him an honorary out of the Creepy Dude Corner. Yeah. Uh, well, last week it was just the three of you here in the booth, so we had enough Creepy Dude Corner to go around. Two of us. Two of us, yeah. Oh, yeah. I recorded yeah. separate last week. We made a promise right. not to talk about what went, what went on. Uh, unfortunately, anyway, we have to add a woman to the mix now. And uh, a woman who has been a vocal advocate and supporter of the Me Too movement, that's Asia Argento. As BBC reports, legal documents seen by the New York Times were reported to show Asia Argento paying former co-star Jimmy Bennett $380,000 after he accused her of sexually assaulting him when he was 17. In a statement, she says, I have never had any sexual relationship with Bennett. The actress says she strongly denies the contents of the New York Times article, Quoting documents exchanged between lawyers for Bennett and Argento, the paper details an incident alleged to have taken place in 2013 in a California hotel room when he had just turned 17 and Argento was 37. 
Uh, it's a little graphic. She's alleged to have performed oral sex before engaging in full intercourse with Bennett, a successful child actor and rock musician. Wait, I have to interrupt because I feel like there's an important detail missing that really makes this creepy, creepy dude corner. Again, all allegations. Oh, about this. But the thing is that the, the, the relationship began because she cast this young man in a film she directed when he was seven years old. So they had had a relationship for the past 10 years and, and they first met when he was really, really a child. Yeah. Uh, so that, I feel like that adds a kind of creepy, weepy factor. She just kind of wait. I mean, she didn't even wait for him to become legal or anything. Well... The age of consent is obviously 18 in California. Uh, Argento was one of the first to speak out against Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein, who has been accused of sexual misconduct by more than 70 women. She is said by the New York Times to have arranged the payment for Bennett in the months that followed her revelations about Mr. Weinstein in October. And he's, she has also now said that it was something that her late lover, Anthony Bourdain, uh, pushed her to do. And while, you know... While what Argento is alleged to have done is awful and should be viewed as such, however, it of course doesn't negate her abuse at the hands of Harvey Weinstein, and one does not cancel out the other. She was a victim in one case, an abuser allegedly in another. Both statements can be true, and is it you know hypocritical of her? I think yes, but it it doesn't let Harvey Weinstein off the hook, obviously, as his attorneys are trying to claim uh, for his actions either. Uh, so so welcome to the corner, Asia. Um, <laughs> You know, we, we don't we don't know if we do we ever let them out of the corner. No, you don't, you are permanently. Well, in the I corner. think that's an ongoing debate. I okay. think it is. Okay. Yeah, and I'm, you know, it's um, I think it's important to note that a lot of the the Me Too you know founders are are you know coming out sort of in support of of both of them and saying we we really want to encourage young men who have experienced this kind of thing to come out, and as you said, Eric, you know, it it, it doesn't negate what happened. To Asia Argento, and it's sort of all bad news, but at the same time, important that it's it's coming out, that people are talking about it, that these issues aren't going to be swept under the carpet, you know, in our industry anymore. So we'll keep you posted on where that story goes uh, in the end. But in the meantime, Charles, please hit us up with some gear news and tech news and gear and tech news. I feel like this is going to end up in some sort of like montage of like. Awkward transitions in podcasts where you're like, oh, that's a terrible story. And now 360 video. Um, So our first story this week is from Insta360, who've just released the Insta360 Pro 2. Uh, If you don't remember Insta360, our buddy Andrew Schwartz called it the DVX of 360. But I mean, that's because Andrew and I are kind of old. If you're a little bit younger, that means it's the 5D Mark II of 360. It's the camera that's like affordable enough and good enough that it really has the chance to like dramatically change things. Is it as good as like the top of the line $50,000 Ozo? No, but the DVX wasn't as good as the top camera of 2003 and the 5D wasn't as good as the Alexa, but it was good enough and the images were good enough and the price point was such that like either you could afford it or someone you knew could afford it or you could afford to rent it and because it was around, you could play with it and explore and learn in this whole new way. And that's what's so exciting about the Insta360. This is what 360 video, I think, needs, since I think it requires, like, this massive rethinking of how we work. And for that to happen, I don't think you do that on, like, one weekend rental, where you, like, plan for months and then you do it for a weekend and you give it back. Like, I think you kind of need to own it and keep playing with it and then, like, have a friend come over and play with it and try and do something else and do a lot of stuff with it. And that's the promise Insta360 is bringing to this reshaping of how we think about immersive video by getting the gear in the hands of thousands of people for months at a time. Insta360 comes in under five grand. The new Pro 2 rolls out with two major upgrades that are gonna be really appreciated by users. The first is sophisticated in-camera stabilization called Flow State. It's a nine-axis internal gyroscope, which means the camera can stabilize the image from all of its cameras internally, which is especially important for 360 because there's so many lenses and keeping them stabilized in sync with each other is going to make stitching much easier. It's going to make a much more pleasant experience for your users in the end, and doing it in-camera is going to make it much easier on post. On top of that, and this is maybe even a little cooler, 360 Insta360 has introduced Farsight. This allows for immersive 360 monitoring up to like 300 meters away on the ground or a full kilometer away in the air. So like you've got the 360 a kilometer up in the sky on a drone, you put on goggles and you can look around in 360 on the ground 
And because of the back and forth communication with Farsight, you can have an immersive 360 experience in live, which is going to be huge because one of the biggest problems with working with these cameras is monitoring it live. Where do you hide on set? Can you be in the next room? Can you be two rooms over? Are you looking at like a little weird thing on an iPad monitor that's trying to preview you what you look like? So I think Farsight is going to be like a big, huge thing, both for like event-based stuff where you can like fly it in the air from a drone and feel like you're flying in space, but also for working on sets and using this in new ways. That combined with internal stitching, deep integration with Adobe Premiere, uh, 12 stops of latitude, they have a new HDR mode, but I don't know how excited I am about that, should conspire to keep the Insta360 as like a big driver of innovation in the 360 video space. Our other major story this week is new releases from NVIDIA. So uh, the two big graphics card makers are obviously NVIDIA and AMD. And graphics card matters a lot to filmmakers because all of the stuff we do is graphics intensive. So whether you're editing high-res video or you're doing motion graphics or visual effects, a, your computer needs a powerful graphics card to crunch on all that. If you've ever been really frustrated by your machine, chances are it's the graphics card, not the CPU that is letting you down. And... Most filmmakers have a preference for NVIDIA because they have rolled out a lot of new technology that has worked really well to give you a really fast playback of high resolution. They've just rolled out the new 2000 line of cards, the 2070, 2080, and 2080 Ti that are built on this new Turing architecture using RTX technology, and they're four to six times faster than the old 1070 and 1080 cards for the same price. So... This is going to be really useful for filmmakers using GPU-heavy applications like Premiere and Resolve and Media Composer and Nuke. Um, on top of that, there was an announcement from Red, on Red User, of course, that they've been working with NVIDIA to ensure that the new Turing architecture cards are going to be able to do real-time playback of Red Raw 8K files at full res. Now, this is something that, like, back in the 4K Red days, you could buy a Red Rocket for five grand, and that would give you full uh, R3D playback. But the Red Rocket was five grand, and it only accelerated Red Media. Now, with these new Quadro cards, you can buy this card, and granted, these are going to be pricier than the 2080. The 2080 is like 1200 bucks. The Quadro cards will start around two grand. But you buy this two, $3,000 card, depending upon how much power you want, and you plug it in your system, and you get 8K playback. And the card also works with all the other systems. Resolve uses it, Premiere uses it, hooray. So this is a really awesome thing for Red. Playing well with others is something we always really appreciate. And finding ways to make post less painful is always really cool. And Red also says all the work they did, which is all apparently going to roll out in software releases in December, is going to be benefit lower-end cards too. So the same work they did for those Quadro cards, even if you have a 2080 or an older card like a 1070, you're still going to see benefits. You're going to be able to play higher-resolution Red files with fewer dropouts. It's going to be really cool. So since most of us aren't even working on an 8K monitor, playing half-res on an 8K file still gives you 4K playback. And those cards are going to be really affordable. So, especially because cryptocurrency is crashing, um, the cards are getting more, more and more affordable every day. The last cool thing they did is they're releasing a $75 link that lets you link your graphics cards together in your computer. So if you've got like a really big machine, like a Linux box, or you've got like a GPX expand, uh, a Cubix expander, you can put a bunch of cards together. And then you can link them together with this link cable and they're like way faster because they're working together as a team because teamwork is awesome and they don't have to go through the motherboard to work together. I don't know if any of the video apps we use will take advantage of this, but I hope they do because speed is great. Apple, of course, hasn't had an NVIDIA chip in one of their computers since 2013, which means that many Apple users probably feel a little left out in this upgrade, although AMD just came out with some new chips as well. However... With OS X now supporting external graphics boxes and the flurry of rumors about a PCI-capable Apple Mac Pro coming out in 2019, it is possible that in 2019 some Mac users are going to be stuffing their systems full of the 2080 cards and getting amazing benefits in post, even on a Mac. Thanks, Charles. So we, we've got a great uh, Ask No Film School question this week that I think uh, will apply to a lot of people. Albert Romero wrote on the boards to ask, uh, I'm a noob, his words, in my mid-20s. Is it too late for me to start? And, um, yeah, I thought as the resident oldies here, Charles and I could, could tackle this one. So what do you think? Albert, you've got some more detail in your question that I didn't include, 
But that was enough for me to answer no. The answer is always no. It is literally never too late. You can start making movies in your 70s. I taught at LACC for eight years, and I would regularly have students picking up cameras in retirement who loved and relished the experience and learned to tell stories with images, and some of them did really amazing work. But I don't think that's actually what you're asking. I don't think you're only asking, can I learn to tell stories with images? I think you're also asking, can I have a career in movies? Can I make this my life's work? And I don't think it's too late for that either. There might be a time where it is too late. I don't know where that is. But certainly your mid-20s is by no means too late. In your question, you mentioned that a lot of your heroes were making features by their mid-20s. And I would counter that the ones who weren't making features in their mid-20s don't get written about as much. So, like, there's a great book on this by uh, a man named David Galenson. It's called Old Masters and Young Geniuses, and it points out that less than 40% of famous artists, and he studies sculptors and painters and filmmakers and writers, less than 40% break out in their 20s. Most break out between the age of 35 and 50. Yeah, I have to say I actually did some research on this for uh, Albert's question, and even I was surprised by how many well-known filmmakers broke out later in life like when they were probably closer to your parents' age. Um, a more recent big example is Ava DuVernay, who is rocking film and television right now. She made her first feature, I Will Follow, at 38, and her breakout hit Selma at 42. And one of Hollywood's biggest names, Ridley Scott, made his first film at 40 and has made 22 features since. Like, this list goes on and on and on. And, and we can say this because we're press, press always wants a headline. And feature made by 40-year-old. Not a headline, <laughs> right? Feature made by 26-year-old, 22-year-old, a headline. So the story gets told, Wonder Kid filmmaker makes breakout feature. But we seldom headline 42-year-old directs touching movie because it's just not a story. So the movie might still be a hit. You might still launch a career. You might have this amazing experience. But it's not a fascinating hook the way youth is. So really, don't fret. You have plenty of time. Many, many people didn't even spend the time before they made their first feature in movies. Lots of people do something else, and then at 30 or 35 are like, wait a minute, i got to work in movies, and then said, fuck this, and they pivoted over to movies. And sometimes it happens really quickly, but sometimes it takes years. So I want to bring up again community college, because night classes, like 80% of my students when I taught community college had day jobs, but they all worked together on Saturdays and they all met at night classes together. And so you talked in your question about like, I have a day job. It's hard for me to find people to collaborate with. Find the people to collaborate with who are in the same situation. I guarantee you there are people in your community out there who are like, could we just maybe only make movies on Sundays, please? That's when I'm available. And you find them by going to the things on Sundays and at night because that's where they will be too. Actually, I want to jump in, you know, to sort of echo what Charles is saying and also you know, I want to point out something specific that Albert wrote in his question, um, which Charles kind of alluded to, but um, Albert said because of his specific circum circumstances, he feels that, quote, the only solution is to quit my job. And I just want to kind of discourage that thinking, for now at least. If you're creative enough to be a filmmaker, you are creative enough to come up with ways to make a living and start making films. For example, community college. I mean, we all have day jobs here at No Film School, and we're all making movies, even if it's on like a bit of more of a delayed timeline than we would sometimes like. And I think it actually makes filmmaking a bit less stressful to know that you have some other kind of income and don't have everything riding on a specific project. So, you know, I'm not saying it's in the like mean old guy way, like don't quit your day job. But like, really, you don't have to quit your day job right now. Just keep your day job, and keep your dreams alive. It's it's truly possible. Yeah, I'll wrap up with this. Teddy Roosevelt had this great quote that ran something like, when we compare our insides to other people's outsides, we always come up wanting. So like you're there in your mid-20s, and you're looking at other people in their mid-20s, and you have no idea how much doubt or fear they went through. You have no idea how many lucky breaks they got that you're not going to get until you're 38. You have no idea what their insides look like. You're just looking at your insides and comparing it to their outsides. But your mid-20s is absolutely not too late. And the important thing is also remember is that we're in an era where like you can make films in all sorts of ways. Like I was saying earlier, I will be shooting parts of Salty Pirate for the next couple of months here and there and randomly and picking up little things. The old model of a film production is three weeks and it's 12-hour days and it's six days a week and then everything goes back into the thing. 
most docs are not shot like that. Like if you just want to get started and there's a topic you're passionate about, you can start working on a doc shooting four hours a week. It might take a while, but if there's a subject you're interested in, that might be the right fit for the doc. So yeah, I, I second Liz, use your creativity to find places to squeeze it in without quitting your day job quite yet. Good luck. Good luck. We're rooting for you, Albert. And we've got some fantastic independent films that you can see this week, starting with Disobedience coming on August 25th to Amazon Prime Instant. When this movie premiered at Tribeca earlier this year, I was super excited because of the team behind it. It's the English language debut for Chilean director Sebastian Lelio, who won the Foreign Language Oscar this year for A Fantastic Woman. Now, his screenwriting partner on the film, Rebecca Lenkowitz, co-wrote the screenplay for Ida, which won the same prize in 2015. And the film is shot by Danny Cohen, who has beautifully handled similarly intimate dramas in the past, including The Danish Girl and A24's Room. Now put this group together with the celebrated leads, Rachel Weiss, also a producer on the film, and Rachel McAdams, and anyone else named Rachel, and you pretty much have a dream team. And I have to say, it delivered. It's a movie that's really stuck with me all these months. It's basically a love story that takes place in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in London between the daughter of the community rabbi, played by Rachel Weiss, and the woman who was her best friend before she left the community for a secular life. And that's Rachel McAdams' character. When Weiss returns for her father's funeral, she finds herself ostracized from the community, and McAdams is married to their other male best friend who's in line to become the next big rabbi. Let's say that drama ensues, and also sex. I interviewed Lelio about how he told an authentic story from within a community that was completely foreign to him in almost every way, and uh, we'll link to that interview in the podcast post. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant as well is Mother uh, on August 26th. <laughs> Gotta say it with the exclamation point. That's Mother! Like, that's how it's supposed to be. That's the correct pronunciation. Mother? You know, it's like no question mark. Nope. So. One of last year's most controversial movies, audiences didn't quite know what to make of Darren Aronofsky's latest film. Everyone I talked to uh, about it has either completely loved it or been absolutely appalled. A lot of other people on social media have taken the route of, who cares what you think about it? It is worth seeing because it is something wholly unique, which is something I do agree with. To me, a film that stirs up this much controversy and opinion is definitely worth checking out merely for the experience of what it's actually like watching it, the experience of watching it. And while the film was mostly well-received by critics, it's currently sitting at a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, it made headlines for earning a super rare and studio-head-dreaded F on CinemaScore when it came out. Based in Las Vegas, CinemaScore surveys audiences every weekend to gauge their reactions to new movies and see what effect that might have on its box office returns. And as predicted, those box office returns weren't very good. As I said, the film itself, however, is quite good. The ending may be a bit confounding, but the risks Aronofsky takes in a studio picture are definitely worth commending, as is the studio for putting out such a weird film. In it, a couple's relationship is tested when uninvited guests arrive at their home, disrupting their tranquil existence. It's also got a great cast, including Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, Ed Harris, and Michelle Pfeiffer. On the site, you can check out our coverage of Aronofsky's keynote speech from South by Southwest this year, in which he goes into heavy detail about the insanity that is Mother. Mother. Now, is this the same mother who makes that list of the best independent film festivals? No, that's mom. No, that's mom. That's mom. No, no, this is a classier person. And debuting on Hulu and in theaters on August 24th is Crime and Punishment, uh, the documentary follows 12 police officers who take the NYPD to court for targeting and arresting citizens from minority neighborhoods in order to fill their department quotas. The film premiered at Sundance this year, where it won a special jury prize for documentary with social impact. It was directed by Stephen Meng, who in an interview with Oakley Anderson Moore earlier this year explained, We wanted to make a very different kind of film that would get audiences to live through these experiences in a new way, in a very first-hand manner. At the same time, I wanted the film to have a structure that was built around organically woven, multi-character portraits. If done that way, we could show the single action of an officer that receives a directive to go out and get a certain amount of arrests and summonses, and then we'd see the tremendous ripple effect throughout the community. I structured the film that way because I wanted to get away from the traditional, linear narrative of the single protagonist. So that's in theaters and on Hulu with, I think, three ads that you'll probably have to watch if it's on Hulu uh, starting Friday. 
And another movie that's coming to theaters on August 24th is Arizona. It's another midnight movie that I caught back at the Sundance Film Festival that I thought was pretty good. It's the debut feature of director Jonathan Watson, who has worked on both Vice Principals, which I recently watched and really liked, and Eastbound and Down. So it's not surprising that this film is also a Danny McBride vehicle. It's set in the midst of the 2009 housing crisis, and it's a darkly comedic story that follows Cassie Fowler, who's played by Rosemary DeWitt, a single mom and struggling realtor whose life goes off the rails when she witnesses a murder. The man who commits the murder is played by Danny McBride, and he proceeds to take her hostage, and she must do her best to escape the grasp of his insanity. The result is a film that quickly alternates between dark comedy and horror slasher, and I think it's also a decent preview of what we may end up seeing in David Gordon Green's new Halloween, since it's being produced by their same production company. You can listen to a podcast I did with Watson and composer Joseph Stevens, who helped build this slasher atmosphere through his score, and it's titled How to Build a Score That Raises Your Audience Expectations. In our interview, we talk about how a great score can be used to influence your audience, the typical workflow of audio post-production, and how a composer can stand out in the biz. And one of the movies I've seen this year with the most striking visuals is beginning its theatrical release tomorrow and then rolling out over the next few weeks. It's a documentary called Rodents of Unusual Size. Yes, a reference to one of my all-time favorite movies, The Princess Bride, and that title gives you a sense of why it's so crazy to look at. Its protagonists are nutria, or giant swamp rats, common in the southern U.S., which are known for their prominent bright orange buck teeth. <laughs> I love how the nutria, it almost makes me think it's healthy for you, but apparently It sounds like a sugar substitute. Yeah, they don't sound healthy. Yeah. This doc is a really fascinating look at these critters and their surprisingly complex relationships with the people and landscape of the post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans area. For example, one of the human protagonists hunts the nutria for a living, but he also keeps one as a pet. So there's there's a lot of interesting dynamics at play. A weird guy. We, why a, would you want one of these as a pet? I mean, why would you want any like creature living and then, in your house? And why is he I hunting mean, them? I would yeah. rather have a dog or a cat than a giant rat in my house. I don't think that's a It's a construct. We are we're trained to believe that doggies and kitties are the sweet animals to keep at home, but you know, What's the difference? Really? You're in New Orleans. Get a giant swamp rat. Get, get a get a gator. <laughs> get a crocodile. You have to see the movie. Oh. Anyway, my Bay Area buddy Chris Metzler co-directed and produced the film along with Jeff Springer and Quinn Costello. And by the way, it's narrated by Wendell Pierce of The Wire fame. And uh, we had Chris on a podcast episode from Doc NYC where he talks a bit about making this crazy movie, but much more broadly about what it takes to produce a documentary with two other successful documentary producers as well. That episode is called A Pre to Post Primer on Documentary Filmmaking, and we will link to it in this week's podcast post. Cool. Now for some upcoming deadlines. Uh, with a early bird deadline of September 15th is the Coppola Short Film Competition. The mission of the Coppola Short Film Competition is to find and promote new and innovative voices in cinema. Every film is screened closely by a select handful of professional screeners, and Palme d'Or winner and Academy Award nominee Gus Van Sant selects the winner of the grand prize. The winning filmmaker will receive $5,000. American Zoetrope will invite select talent agencies and production companies to view the winning film in four honorable mentions at coppolashorts.com. The Rain in Filmmaking grant has a deadline on August 29th. This is a grant from the San Francisco Film Society, and it's the largest granting body for independent narrative feature films in the U.S., it grants support films that address social justice issues, the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges in a positive and meaningful way through plot, character, theme, or setting. Awards are made to multiple projects twice a year in the spring and fall for screenwriting, development, and post-production. Grants support meaningful projects that benefit the Bay Area filmmaking community specifically in a professional and economic capacity. The program is open to filmmakers, all of them in the U.S. and internationally, who can commit to spending time developing the work in San Francisco. But priority is given to Bay Area or SF-based filmmakers. In addition to the cash grants, recipients receive various benefits through SF Films' comprehensive and dynamic artist development programs, including a six-month residency at Filmhouse. And now moving on to festival deadlines. These are some big ones. The South by Southwest early bird deadline is August 23rd. It takes place, of course, in Austin, Texas from March 8th to the 16th, 2019. That deadline is tonight, and I'm going to be applying to it. So if you want to fight me, come and get some. Everybody wants some made in Austin. 
What is there to say about South by Southwest besides it's awesome? If you listen to the show, then you've heard our coverage there for the past three years, I think. Three years. And, you know, it's got great panels, conferences. But I think, like, most importantly, the parties are really laid back. And uh, if you're a filmmaker, you're going to go there for the parties uh, or the networking sort of situations. Uh, They're super laid back. They're unpretentious. And it really feels like a festival that's main ambition is to set up an amazing environment for filmmakers to meet one another and potentially work together in the future. Um, so yeah. keep it going, and they're very, very smart programmers. Who yeah, know very smart great programmers. shorts. Attractive. When they see them, yeah, they are exactly. lovely, smart, intelligent people. <laughs> I, I'm, I wasn't trying to butter them up. I, that's actually what I think. No, if you the... listen to the show, you know John does love South by Southwest, as we all do. And I'll take this opportunity also, since I believe it's the last week of voting on the panel picker, to please, uh, if you haven't yet, please, uh, or even if you have, I think you can vote twice. Check out the panel picker, do a search for Make Your Own Damn Movie, and give a little upvote to my panel for this year's South by Southwest with Lloyd Kaufman and other filmmakers talking about, yeah, how to get your shit done. It's going to be good. Thanks. And our next deadline is for August 24th, and that's the Sundance Film Festival. And if you're saying, hey, wait a minute, didn't you guys already do this one last week? Well, you're right, Mr. Person. Uh, guy. <laughs> Mr. Person. You're right, Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Person, get it right. <laughs> Last week we were referring to the regular deadline for shorts, and this is the regular deadline for features. So why two separate deadlines? Who knows? Does anyone know? Anyone that might be closely involved I, I with Sundance? No, I don't know. So if you want to fight, John, too late. Yeah, you but missed the shorts there deadline, must be a sucker. Reason, though, no, because, you can do the late yeah. deadline. We can get into it later. Mm. So, of course, Sundance takes place in Park City, Utah from January 24th to February 3rd, 2019. It's a pretty cool festival that we like. Here's some info. It's in its 35th year. It's the premier showcase for U.S. and international independent film. Uh, You know, it has all these great programs and installations and talks, I guess. And uh, it's a pretty pretty good festival. So, <laughs> also very smart, very smart, attractive people work there. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. I hope you guys are getting the message. I know every prominent programmer in America listens to this podcast, so we'll just plant the seed. Maybe the I guy. should take the time the to, to say that I have a short film. <laughs> oh right, right, right. right. That's uh, called the guy. You can go hear a little bit more about it later. Uh, with the deadline of August. Can I just say, isn't that a really catchy title? Like, if you were sifting through, if you were, say, you were a programmer. And you were like sifting through a lot of submissions. The guy? I, th- I think the guy would really stand uh, out to you. I mean, more than amateur. <laughs> that maybe. Oh. I mean, I think you should have called it white cis male. Ooh. I'd say, I mean, it's not far from the truth. Oh. See, I mean, hey, see, we're writing your logline as, as we discuss. Uh, I did have to write my logline this weekend, and it took me three hours. It's, yeah. that's a, actually, that's a it's big challenge. Enough. I mean, people who go to these pitch sessions and they where they have, like, the Points North um, Film Forum in Camden, one of the things they work on, like, for an entire day with lots of feedback is the logline. It's really tough. Can you tell us what it is? Do you remember? <sighs> no, I don't remember. <laughs> Um, A white cis male. It's, uh, I mean, here, I could look it up. Yes, we want to hear it. Just in case our our friends at uh, Sundance and South by Southwest are listening, they know what to look out for. To avoid. Okay. The log line is, Tony struggles to regain control of his mundane existence after it is hijacked by his stunningly masculine, undeniably psychopathic alter ego. The guy. Did you like it, actually? That sounds like maybe the title should be The Guy? No. No? No. The title's perfect. Because maybe he's not the guy. Maybe he's talking to the guy. No, it's like Mother. It's The Guy. The Guy. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Hmm. Hmm. No, The Guy dot dot dot. Or do I italicize Guy? Like the guy. This is no, you'd want to tell a, You're the? No, that would be italicizing the. Aren't uh, you an editor? I don't know. I don't know. I feel like that's more of a, it's, it has an ellipsis at the end. Like the guy dot dot dot. Because like, what the fuck? Oh, shit. It can be anything. It can oh be anything you want, you want it to be. That's a good thing about the title, like the guy. There's a lot you can project onto it. That was the point. Yeah, good job. That's the point of my movie. You can project whatever you want onto it. I can't wait. It's, speaking of projections, uh, 
<laughs> we got one more deadline. Why well, we got one more deadline that involves motion pictures. And with a regular deadline of August 26th is the Slam Dance Film Festival, which also takes place in Park City, Utah, from January 25th through January 31st, 2019. Slam Dance is almost like Sundance's strange little cousin. That's funny. That's how I describe you, John. Yeah, you remember little Eddie at Thanksgiving? This is it's Slam Dance. Uh, th- this year, they're encouraging additional film submissions from female-identifying directors to work towards parity in their submissions pool in the film industry at large. So they are extending the early deadline rates of $60 for features and $40 for short films to female-identifying directors until August 27th, which is Monday. It is an Academy Award qualifying festival for short films, and the filmmakers of Slam Dance 2019 will compete for various awards and prizes, including the Slam Dance Sparky, which is that a dog? The Slam Dance Sparky. You get a dog if you win. Maybe. And and the Russo Brothers $25,000 Fellowship Award, in addition to other cash and service prizes. Russo Brothers got Disney money now. They can give $25,000 fellowships to people for like nothing. And you know what? Good for them for doing it. So, now, it's time. Weekly Words of Wisdom. Words of <laughs> Wisdom. Wow, Eric, were I you thought, working on that all well, week? Well, we sang last week, or two weeks ago. We sang it for you, right? That was beautiful. Oh, no, we did no, shout, shout outs. outs. Shout oh, out. Liz has friends. Lots of friends. I like that one. But Weekly Words of Wisdom was a great, that was a good song. Appreciate it's, it. It sounded a little trumpet-like. Which I like. <laughs> Wisdom. <laughs> so last week the guys mentioned Bing Liu's Minding the Gap and it's in the releases section. It's now on Hulu and as Eric mentioned, I loved it. It's so freaking good. Um, I got to speak to the director about it for a post that we'll put up this week. But, but to share a little bit, um, Liu, the director, came up as a shooter in part because he began filming his friends for skate videos in his teens. And some of this early footage is used in the biographical documentary. One of the most amazing things we talked about is how he built his own glide cam rig so that he could skate alongside his friends while shooting smooth footage. And it's really some of the, you know, I grew up, as if you listen to the show, you know, I grew up skateboarding and I watched a lot of these videos. And this is some of the kind of most intimate skateboarding footage I've seen because he's really skating right along next to them. But it's not um, all bumpy and crazy. So I asked him for shooting advice and he said, that the only two things you really need to think about are frame sizes and perspective, you know, regardless of all the other technical stuff. He said specifically, quote, there's just been frame sizes that feel more psychologically pleasing to the eye, and it's based off how Michelangelo cut up the human body. If you stick with that, then you can, like, realize, yeah, that's why you never cut off people at the knees. That's why you never cut off people at the hip. And on perspective, he added... Quote, there's a reason why people understand you use a 50 millimeter lens so much. It's because that lens is the one that most aligns with our human eyes. When you're shooting something, think about how it feels through a human in the room. Where are you standing? Because a lot of the time you'll be shooting something and it just has the feel of like, oh, this is just a camera person standing in the corner. It doesn't feel like perhaps there's somebody sitting on the other side of the room looking at the people they're with. So, you know, obviously this is coming from a guy who made a documentary about his own life. So he really was in the room and part of the scene. But I like that he takes this approach into other work that he does as well. So that, um, you know, it's it's not the classic cinema verite where you're just a fly on the wall, but sort of acknowledging, hey, this camera's in the room. It has a sense of what's going on and it brings you, the audience, into that room as well, which I think is a a really nice approach. So I'm pretty excited about uh, what's coming up next on the podcast uh for the next three weeks i'd say um we're gonna be doing something a little different next monday's podcast will be the first of a series that i'll be creating that are in a similar vein to ryan ku's wildly popular first feature series in which he chronicled how he made his first feature uh mine is gonna be something along the lines of what our ask no film school question was about today and uh it's gonna be called the first short and you guessed it, it's going to be about how I made my first short in my mid-20s as a noob uh, with a full-time job, which is like pretty much exactly what we talked about today. Living the dream. Of course, instead of 10 episodes, mine is only going to be three. Um, but I think there are a number of massive differences between making a short and a feature that really need to be addressed. So I'm going to do it, and I'm going to walk you through the journey of how a clueless filmmaker with no prior experience 
learned to do pre-production, production, and post-production sort of on the fly and uh, pull off a short. Uh, I'm going to have key members of my crew on to tell me what I did wrong, what you can do better, and other great stuff like that. So needless to say, I'm really excited about it. And, uh, you know, it's not really going to be uh, about my short. I, I kind of make like glib remarks throughout this episode about like self promotion or whatever, but this is really not going to be a podcast where I am like doing self promotion for my short. It's going to be uh, something that I've learned through, um, you know, the last three years of interviewing people uh, about their films is I really try and like stick to broader advice and ignore the movie that they're coming out with completely. So it's, it's really going to be about the steps that I took and the journey um, so you guys can sort of learn from my mistakes uh, as I did from like every filmmaker that I interviewed over the past three years. Uh, really, my short film is totally a result of hearing other filmmakers talk about their own experiences. So I really think it's like the most valuable education that you can get in filmmaking. Um, so hopefully I can you know, give you guys some of that. Well, we are all excited to learn about what you learned in advance of seeing this dang thing, John. And um, for for the rest of our episodes, and of course for this one, you can find all of them by searching for the No Film School podcast on your favorite podcasting app. If it happens to be iTunes, we really appreciate those ratings. It helps other people find the podcast. And um, I mean, of course, when those ratings are four or five or even six stars... But if you give a thumbs up or thumbs down, it doesn't recommend you another episode. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, uh, you can read everything we talked about on this week's show. We'll link to it all on the podcast post at nofilmschool.com, where you can also find new original articles about the craft of filmmaking every single day. Meanwhile, stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Nutria the Yellow Buck Teeth Rat. (laughs) Uh, I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. In Spanish, it's yim yon yim. Oof. Yeah, I learned that in Mexico. I don't think that's true. No? Anyway, Charles is at Charles Hain. We're all at No Film School, and we will see you next Thursday. Adios. Adios.